Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 83. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. And you can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. On today's episode, we're talking about resurrection and rationality with Dr. James T. Turner, who is Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Anderson University and the author of On the Resurrection of the Dead, A New Metaphysics of Afterlife for Christian Thought, published by Rutledge. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Amber Bowen and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So Amber, what did you most appreciate about our conversation with Dr. Turner? I think what I really love about this series is how we have a variety of different voices um, coming from different methodological approaches and different traditions, different areas of expertise. Dr. Turner is an analytic theologian trained more in the the analytic uh, tradition of philosophy. And so it's, it's really interesting, especially in light of some of our other guests, to kind of hear his approach and his way of thinking about apologetics. And I think what we discover is we're really kind of getting at something very similar, even though we're looking at it from different traditions and different areas of study. What I love the most about this episode is how we're thinking about, okay, what is what does faith mean? What does it mean to be in faith um, or to have faith, to live a life of faith? And then therefore think back on the apologetics enterprise and think strategically, okay, then what's the best way to get us to that? That requires some rethinking of what is commonly known as the contemporary apologetic enterprise. But I think that Dr. Turner is doing some really great work in that area. I think what I really appreciated was the conversation on the nature of the resurrection, specifically as it pertains to kind of the metaphysics of human composition. Like, for example, do we have an immaterial soul or not? This sort of thing. And um, Dr. Turner is a hylomorphist. He'll explain what that means later on in our conversation. But it was interesting to consider not just this as a topic of apologetic debate, but also how it sort of informs an apologetic method. Because if, for example, we hold to a kind of strict substance dualist approach where we are an immaterial soul that happens to sort of instrumentally have a body or possess or use a body, how might that sort of prioritize or give preferential treatment to certain apologetic questions and endeavors to the exclusion of others? Yeah, in particular, the questions that it tends to exclude are the questions that are most germane to the point in time in which we find ourselves. And so retrieving a more holistic understanding of what it what human personhood is, I think really sets us on a much healthier path to a, a, a fuller and even more effective, quote unquote, apologetic enterprise. And even a kind of embodied rationality. Yes, exactly. All right. And here's our conversation with Dr. Turner. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Turner. Thanks for having me out. Glad to talk with you both. And good to see you all. I know your listeners probably can't see you, but I can see you. So it's good to see uh, two human faces, which is nice. So far in this series, we have been talking with different scholars about um, the concerns that they might have with apologetics and 
trying to imagine some constructive ways forward. Some of the concerns that are, are raised typically fall along a couple different categories of philosophical issues, ethical issues, and kind of theological issues. Can you tell us a little bit about some of your personal background with apologetics? What do you think its enterprise ought to be? And from your perspective, where do things tend to go wrong? Uh, yeah, so that's a, a couple of questions there. Um, in the academic world, in the professional world, if you like, I don't tend to do what I consider apologetics to be. Um, most of my work, uh, if your listeners aren't familiar with me, is in what we might call analytic theology. And although some people, some criticisms of analytic theology have been that it's motivated by Christian apologetics, maybe some who are doing analytic theology have that bent, but I don't. I work inside of a Christian tradition, a particular one, and I just assume that Christian tradition is uh, right and teaches truthfully about important things. And then what I try and do is figure out how that stuff works. That's the main thing I'm doing. But my route into analytic theology and analytic philosophy before that uh, started in apologetics. I mean, I, you know, grew up in the church, uh, sort of a non-denominational evangelical, so read Presbyterian or not Presbyterian, but Baptist. Um, although we could step in Presbyterian, we just weren't very educated on such matters. It was like, well, are they preaching from the Bible if they are cool? Um, when my twin brother and I were in high school, um, we began listening to this fellow called Hank Hanegraaff, the so-called Bible answer man, who I think he's still around and converted to Eastern Orthodoxy, I think, which is interesting. But we just thought that guy was so cool and smart because he, you know, we thought understood the Bible really well and knew all these like answers to difficult questions that we didn't know the answer to. And uh, we thought that was super cool. And I didn't really do anything with that through college. I wasn't a, a studious person at all. Um, but when I got out of university and, you know, went into the real world, if you like, I sort of fell again into love with apologetics reading very intro level sort of theology and philosophy work and decided I wanted to go back to graduate school and study apologetic. Um, and so I enrolled at Liberty University because uh, Gary Habermas is a professor there who works on the reliability of the New Testament with respect to the resurrection of Jesus and so on. And so I wanted to go study that. But when I got there, the first class I took, the first two classes I took, one was in uh, philosophy, and it was actually in uh, a, a sort of continental mode of philosophy. We we're just reading Jacques Derrida's Of Grammatology. And then aside, next to that, I was taking an intro to apologetics class. And the two, like I just began to see at that point, apologetics was like not really thinking about issues. It was like memorizing responses to questions. Whereas the philosophy class was all about thinking really hard about really difficult topics. And um, at that moment, I began to think something was a little bit off with the way, say, evangelical Christians anyway, had started to think about apologetics. And so I started moving into philosophical thought uh, more strictly. So I think the second part of your question was, um, what do I think the apologetic task should be? So how about I say something about what I think it shouldn't be? So I don't think apologetics should be attempting to argue people into the Christian tradition. 
And I think it, I think that that, at least in popular ways of thinking about it, the most popular people you, you'd have heard of doing apologetics to name, you know, people who are not so popular now for various reasons, Ravi Zacharias, for example, the goal seems to be, Hey, let me get up in front of a bunch of, you know, atheist people and show them how dumb they are, or try and show them that I can argue them into uh, the Christian faith. So I don't, uh, first of all, I don't think that sort of thing is possible. Second of all, I don't think that apologetics should be that anyway. At most, uh, I take the real a task of apologetics to be something like presenting the Christian story as not fundamentally irrational. Uh, and that's about all I think that it needs to be or should be. I don't think that it requires to be a Christian that one ceases to think hard about difficult issues or about the about human life generally, which is just hard mm -hmm. and complicated. Um, and I don't think it commits anybody to being, you know, illiterate with respect to science or literature or history or the problems of the real world. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think actually what it is what apologetics should be doing is giving us a way to speak meaningfully and coherently into the difficulties and complexities of life. Because I, I think the Christian story has something to say about that, um, partly because it's true. And secondly, and this might be related to truth too, depending on what you think about the transcendentals, it's both beautiful and good. <laughs> so, so I think it has a lot to say to all the difficulties in the world, um, whether or not we can always carve out how exactly every answer is supposed to, or question is supposed to be answered, that's a different question. Uh, but I think that it, it can, uh, because at least in principle, because it's, because it's true. Yeah, and that's interesting hearing you articulate it in that way, because I think it's very similar to sort of what we've been getting at in this series, that um, more of the popular level, uh, or what we would understand as the contemporary apologetics enterprise, primarily in a Western context, right? Yeah. It, it often is described as um, a project that clears away obstacles to faith. Mm -hmm. And presumably those are intellectual obstacles that are preventing me from getting to faith. And so if I can clear those obstacles away, then I'll sort of fall into faith, you know? Right, right. Um, and I think uh, what a lot of people have critiqued is uh, one, if that actually works, you know, are they really truly intellectual obstacles that are keeping people from faith? And two, if you remove those obstacles, is it given that they will fall into faith? Um, yeah. There's kind of a leap there, right? But so we had uh, Myron Penner and Justin Bailey and uh, on, and they were talking about instead of primarily focusing on sort of the epistemic standoff uh, and presenting defeater arguments that you then are sort of, I say this a lot, you make someone intellectually say uncle. Yeah, it's more of opening up new possibilities for them. So whereas Penner and Bailey are going to talk more about, look at these alternative modes of being in the world. Mm -hmm. I think you're going to look more at describing how Christianity is not necessarily to say it's ideologically superior to any other form or any other ideology, as much as you're trying to say it's not fundamentally irrational. So let me open up a possibility of belief for you in that way. Like, would that be correct? Uh, yes, um, at least uh, in part. Um, so, I mean, 
it's a pretty low bar, I think, to show that something's not fundamentally irrational. But I take it that some of the complaints that apologists at least think they're addressing is the criticism that you know, some fundamental claim about Christianity or more than one fundamental claim about Christianity or many of them are uh, not only false, uh, but um, incoherent. And so I think uh, one thing that apologetics, I think, should do is be able to show that that's not the case. But that's, but notice that that's very sort of passive and minimal. It it doesn't, I don't, so I know that, so William Lane Craig, who I, I, I really respect as a thinker, um, suggests that apologetics is something like the first step in evangelism. And I just don't think that's right, um, at least not all the time. I mean, maybe there are some people who they would bow the knee to King Jesus, barring, so, you know, except for one or two intellectual hangups. But I have to be honest with you, I've never met such a person. And the people that I have met that claim that was the case, they, you know, committed to Jesus. Uh, you guys can't see me on, uh, on, online. I did the air bunnies, you know, the air quotes. Um, they also fell out of the Christian tradition very quickly because they committed for the wrong reasons. They weren't, they thought faith was something like an intellectual commitment to various propositions, but of course it's not. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a, it's, as I said earlier, it's bowing the knee to a particular king, um, which is not just agreeing that somebody's the king. It's deciding to give your life over to their authority and sign up for their kingdom. That's that's a far different sort of activity. And as I, and as I said earlier on, I, I thought that, you know, the sort of Robbie Zacharias approach to apologetics being impossible. I think it's impossible for protect for exactly that reason, namely that faith in the Christian tradition isn't the matter of being convinced that something is true. It's doing something about that, making that truth change your life in a way that's more fully orbed than just agreeing to some propositions or other. Um, yeah. I feel like you now, you may not appreciate this, but you now deserve the title of Kierkegaardian. <laughs> oh, right. Okay. Well, if that's, that's all exactly, Kierkegaard is doing, then great. <laughs> that's exactly what he's doing. The, even the, the concept of truth as subjectivity, like that's essentially what it means. It's not just that truth floats around as a proposition in the atmosphere, you know, yeah. but that truth is ultimately something transformative of me that I stand in an actual relation to truth as proposition kind of doesn't do anything, but truth as transformative does. Um, and so that's why really, when you think about the strategy of apologetics, it, the question comes to mind of, so what's best strategy then in terms of apologetics, if we want it to do what we want it to do? Right. So if the point is about actually people actually coming to faith, mm -hmm. um, then to try to lay out a series of facts that, you know, you cognitively assent to, uh, what that's going to do, as you said, it, it creates a kind of really a pseudo faith, right? It's, it's ascribing to a certain ideology that then as soon as 
some kind of counterfactual comes into play, <laughs> it destroys it, you know? Um, and so it, again, it's kind of this question of, well, then what is the best strategy with apologetics? And one of the things we talked about with Dr. Turnbull is there's the subjective side of things and there's the objective side of things. Like there's more of my existential questions about the problem of evil, for example. And then there's more of the intellectual, objective, logical questions. And really my, my question here is if we're talking about faith, can you get to subjective engagement from objective analysis? Or is that creating an infinite leap, if you will? Is it better to imagine a way that we can bring the subjective and the objective together from the start in an apologetic enterprise? And like, is that possible? And what would that maybe look like? So um, maybe tease out some of the categories you're working for, you're, you're, um, you're using here for me. Um, how are you understanding the term subjective in the way you're, you're describing things? So I'm not meaning like these are my subjective feelings that are, you know, uh, disconnected from any kind of objective reality. I mean, more awareness of myself as a subject. Yeah. Okay. Right. And my, my existence in the world, uh, my situatedness and my, my sense of self. Right. right. Um, so that maybe in a more existential sense. Right. Um, and so it's, it's kind of, it's like what you were saying. It's one of those things to, it's one thing to believe oh, I'm convinced by historical evidence that Jesus actually did walk out of that tomb. Sure. You know, it's another thing to ascribe to his lordship, as you were saying. Yeah. Um, so if can we actually get by virtue of facts that Jesus walked out of the tomb, will that actually lead to or help someone in, in the most strategic way to get to his lordship? Yeah, that's a good question. So is that the most strategically helpful way? Well, I don't know, but I will say this. I mean, just anecdotally, I heard uh, Tom Wright say a number of times, uh, John knows Tom, um, that uh, he's got this story about, uh, you know, coming into some Easter Sunday. It was like the week before Easter Sunday. He's in the back of a cab. And um, the cabbie's like, oh, are you a vicar? And he says, oh, yes, I am. And he's like, oh, you guys are, you got this thing going on about um, women being, you know, ordained into the pastor, whatever the Anglicans call it. I can't quite remember. James Arcati's rolling, you know, spinning it like a top in, at uh, Chicago right now. Anyway, um, and, um, you know, Tom's telling him about, you know, how difficult it's been and all the things that they're humming and hawing over and so on. And the cabbie turns uh, to him and says, well, the way I, I think about it is this, is that, um, look, if Jesus rose from the dead, the, then the rest of it's just rock and roll. And um, that's the way I think about it. I, I, that story hit with me. And I thought, that's, I mean, that's right. And so when I, when I talk about people who are, or talk with, you know, students, for example, or, you know, family friends who've gone through crises of maybe we might say an intellectual sort with the Christian story, their own faith or whatever. Uh, first of all, most of the time, it's not really a crisis of intellectual content. It usually has to do with something emotional, something bad has happened to them or somebody they love or whatever. And that's all super serious that creates co complicated intellectual questions. Uh, but they'll ask me, you know, why should I, why, why do I continue to be a Christian given all these terrible things? 
sexual abuse in the church, uh, racism in the church, misogyny in the church, um, you know, anti-science climate in the church or whatever the case may be. I tell them, look, I think Jesus actually rose from the dead. Like if he rose from the dead, that, that requires that I ask a particular question about that. Um, why did he rise from the dead? What sort of person is this? And does that mean that everything else that we know about him is claimed about him turns out to be true? Namely that he is king of the universe and of course God. And once I'm confronted with those facts, I've got, I've got a decision to make, at least I, I do. And so I think presenting that sort of objective information as a decision point matters. But again, uh, I don't think it's going to force anybody to become a Christian um, or submit to the kingship of Jesus. I mean, for the very obvious fact that, and I, you know, maybe I'm going to sound like a rube here. I think that there is such a malevolent, malevolent being as Satan, and um, he believes that Jesus is king of the cosmos, and yet. If the Christian story is right, he's not going to bow the knee. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think giving a decision point for that reason is good, but or, or is helpful. I don't know if it's the best way in. Um, honestly, I think the best way in to getting somebody to commit to Jesus, insofar as humans have the role in this, is to just tell them the good news about Jesus's lordship. Um, you know, that Jesus is Lord and Caesar isn't, and that everything's going to be made right. And that's what we're all sort of looking for anyway, I think. So, yeah. Yeah, that sounds like that kind of invitational thing that Justin Bailey was talking about, kind of inviting someone to see something that they didn't see before right. or new possibilities. And then in that invitational space, uh, you're opening up these possibilities for them to then explore and consider. And at that point, you can talk about the coherence of Christian beliefs and things like that, which I actually think you do a lot in your book, which we'll talk about in a second. But you kind of say, here are my theological claims about the resurrection, and I'm working yeah. from these. Right. Uh, so from within this space, like imagine this for me, with me, if this is true, then let's figure out how it kind of falls together. Um, but you bring up something that uh, we also discussed before, and that's the, the question of evidence. Yeah. Um, and with Dr. Turnbull, we talked about how people take, have different criteria for evidence. Right. Uh, and what they take to be convincing um, or what they take to be primary. And that gets complicated when uh, we consider the fact, and this isn't a default person, this isn't someone who needs to, you know, get rid of this. This is just what it means to be human, is a lot of our evidence is sort of tacitly indwelt. You know, she she gave the example of when the wind rises um, in Texas, she gets you know, afraid that something bad is going to happen because of previous experiences. Right? right. So a lot of times what can push people away from Christianity isn't necessarily, well, gosh, darn it. There are not enough proofs for the resurrection as much as I've experienced abuse <laughs> or yeah. I've seen this kind of ideological oppression or, you know, oppression of women or whatever. And, and that can be an incredibly powerful form of evidence for someone yeah. I wonder if you have thoughts on that too. Um, so when I uh, teach my intro to philosophy course here at Anderson University, um, we talk about theories of truth. And one of the theories that we tr of truth that we talk about is the pragmatic account of truth. Whatever is true is whatever works. Um, and I think there's a host of uh, 
reasons to think that that view of truth doesn't quite doesn't quite work. Um, <laughs> Uh, but that's not to say that pragmatics isn't a way to think about what's true. It may not be sufficient for truth, or maybe yeah, it may not be sufficient. It might be ne not necessary and sufficient. It might be necessary but not sufficient. Anyway, there's a number of things you could say. Um, but there is, there's, there's. Um, I think there's built into maybe human nature. I'll say maybe at least the Western human mind. How about that? Um, that suggests to us that if somebody's making some kind of claim about the world, and then we through lived experience or testing find that that explanatory hypothesis doesn't work to explain the phenomenon, then maybe something's wrong with the hypothesis. So I have to admit, like even in my own life, even my own individual life, never mind what I see in my own church community, I want to think that um, it's true that when a person commits to Jesus, that the Holy Spirit makes that person a new creation, that part of the new world has broken into that individual person. And so what I want to see there is actual transformation, like legit transformation. And yet we have not just in my own life, which obviously I, mean, I, could, I could give you experience ad nauseum of my own moral failings or whatever, just being a terrible person. Uh, how many terrible people there are in the church, how many broken people there are in the church. So sexual abuse, people being abused, misogyny, racism, et cetera. I mean, we've seen it play out on Twitter of all places. Um, and I, you know, I can imagine somebody sitting in the pew going, okay, the hypothesis is, they wouldn't say it this way, but they might think, the hypothesis is that if Jesus is, is the king of the cosmos and there's a Holy Spirit that transforms these people's lives, they should be transformed, and yet they're not transformed. So I either got to commit to the claim that these people aren't genuinely Christians, and if they're not, who are? Or the theory's not right, because it doesn't work. Um, that's how, uh, like, evidence to me is a very funny word. I'm not always sure what to do with it. But whatever we mean by it in its most broad uh, sort of understanding, that seems to me powerful reason or evidence against the claim that Christianity is true or whatever. Um, so, yeah, that's I, I find that to be super. Um, I'm not going to say compelling, but it's at least. Well, is it compelling? Yeah, compelling is the right word. It's compelling. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, we've talked about this too, that really at, at a certain point, the focus was more on combating the atheists of, of skepticism, yeah. right? Like the skeptical atheists, there's not enough proof for X, Y, and Z, whether it be evidential or logical proof. But now people just don't really care about that as much. It's more of, you know, the atheism of suspicion mm -hmm. and recognizing the case of hypocrisy and oppression in its various forms, you know? So it seems to me that just by virtue of the fact that our world is asking very different questions, it requires a real serious shift in, in how we think about apologetics, because at that point, apologetics needs to become less about cognitive fact firing, right? And it needs to be a lot more focused on the coherence of our embodied transformed existence. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. Um, and there's a case to be made that it always should have been that way. 
Um, because as it turns out, you know, the sort of de deplorable behavior of people in the church isn't a new phenomenon. <laughs> Presumably it's been going on for 2000 years, um, which is unfortunate, um, but I mean, simultaneously obvious. Um, I mean, anybody who just reflects on their own thoughts and patterns of behavior should know, like by analogical reasoning, other people are having the same uh, problems. I mean, there's obviously degrees, right? Not everybody's, uh, you know, a, a sexual abuser or something like that. Uh, but nevertheless, um, we know our own hearts are filled with all kinds of malice and greed and selfishness and so on. So we should have been asking this question the entire time. And we should have been thinking that those who've walked away from the church aren't doing it merely because, you know, they found that the answers were, you know, the intellectual curiosities weren't satisfied. That might have been something that was a part of it, but not the whole thing. Uh, at least that's the way it seems to me. Whereas before, I mean, as I say, when I first went to graduate school, I was convinced that if I could answer every question that was, you know, heaved at the Bible on its own internal coherence and historical storytelling, uh, let alone the intellectual, you know, problems of the day, you know, the pr problem of evil or whatever, that if that I could win people to Jesus because they would then see they have no objections. And I've just come to see that that's, even if I could do that, they wouldn't then bow the knee. Something else has to happen. Um, and it's not, you know, and it has nothing to do with, what, how'd you put it, Amber? You said um, uh, making them say uncle. Yeah, yeah. say intel intellectually say uncle. That's it, that's it. Yeah. yeah, and I have a similar story and I, I probably shared this with you at, at some point too, that when I moved to Italy, um, you know, I brought, I had four suitcases that I was allowed to bring with me. and. Two of them were clothes and two of them were books, which I would say now that I'm moving my, the, my, uh, possessions still largely look like that yeah, <laughs> in terms well, of percentages. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but yeah, I had this whole bookshelf in my apartment in Italy full of books and I had my apologetic study Bible and I had like all the 20 questions about the existence of God. Like I had all of the classics and they were marked up and they were tabbed for quick reference, you know, yep. and I was kind of imagining myself sitting with a whole bunch of like Italian atheists at a cafe arguing for the existence of God, you know? And, um, obviously when I got there, I was consumed with life and language learning and all these sorts of things and, and getting to know actual people. And I remember about nine months in, I was standing in my living room and I looked at that bookshelf and I thought to myself, I could literally throw every single one of these books out the window right now right. because these are not the questions that they're asking. These are not the things that they care about. Right. And this ultimately is not going to get me to where I'm hoping to get with them. You know, um, right. that was probably the crisis point for me in terms of my apologetics background. Cause like you, I was very interested in it as well, you know, but it was kind of encountering the real people realizing this isn't the strategy that's going to help. Right. Um, so transitioning a bit to think about the work that you've done on the resurrection and hylomorphism, wondering if you could tell us a little bit about 
what hylomorphism is uh, for those who may be right. un, unfamiliar. But thinking about your work uh, has me interested in a number of apologetic adjacent issues. Of course, the, the historicity of Jesus's resurrection is a big uh, buzzy topic, obviously, within apologetics. Um, but also, given that hylomorphism has to do with the soul, uh, the whole issue of how the soul is sort of treated in apologetic circles and some you know, weird ways through apologetic arguments for the existence of the soul based on like near death experiences or, you know, these kinds of, you know, books like heaven is for real, for example. So I wonder if we can dig into some of those things, beginning with sort of what is hylomorphism and how is it differentiated from other views on the, the soul? Yeah, good. So lots of good questions in there. So, um, let me, so there's, there's two things I, I guess I want to say too broad ways I want to address what you've just asked. So there's um, a sort of large philosophical component. That's the hylomorphic bit. Um, and then there's a, a sort of a theological sort of underlying problem, I think, that gets at the heart of how the soul is treated with respect to Christian views of life after death, and in particular in apologetic sorts of, you know, uh, discussions you're talking about, like the is heaven is you know heaven is for real and, and near death experiences. We could talk about that sort of thing. Um, there's a I think there's a theological problem that's sitting under underneath all of that. Um, whether or not there's a philosophical problem too, there may be, but um, I think the theology is is what's causing, in my view, some uh, things to go awry. Now, the philosophical issue on hylomorphism. So. Uh, hylomorphism is a compound word of hule and morphe. Hule is just uh, you know a Greek term for matter or even wood, um, and morphe is Greek for form, something like that. And so what we get is a compound word which means matter, form, or form matter. And just like that word is a compound word, uh, this is a view that comes from Aristotle or starts in Aristotle, as far as we know. Uh, everything, I mean, everything, 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 everything that's, that exists, bracketing God, potentially, is a form-matter composite, uh, is explained by at least two causal principles that we call form, which is like a shaping and structuring principle, and matter, so a principle of potential. Um, the rough and ready way to think about it and what these terms mean is to think in your mind of, uh, at least the one I like to talk about is Michelangelo's statue of the David. If you haven't seen the David, you should go to Florence, Italy, as soon as that kind of travel is allowed and go see it because it's dope. Okay. Uh, anyway, Michelangelo's the David. I mean, everybody should know what that is, uh, part of the literate public, okay? If you don't know what it is, Google it and find the image. All right. Now, uh, hylomorphism is going to explain everything that exists, including Michelangelo's the David. All right. Well, what's the form uh, of the David? Well, the form of the David is at least something like the shaping and structuring principle that explains why that hunk of marble is the David rather than say a statue of Jesus, which you can, by the way, find in say various cathedrals around Rome. You just walk into some cathedral and oh, that's a Michelangelo statue like right there, not in some you know museum, it's just like there. 
Um, so, you know, Michelangelo carved a whole bunch of things out of marble, but he only carved one, uh, one, the David. And what makes it the David? Well, it's, you know, shaped and structured in a particular, particular sort of way. Um, but of course, the shaping and structuring principle doesn't explain entirely how the thing came to exist. Um, something else needs to be explained, namely the potential. What, what was potentially the David that became actually the David? So where you got the form that's explaining why it's actually the David, you have the marble, the matter, that explains how it went from potentially the David to actually the David. It plays the potential aspect of it. Uh, it could, it could have, it's potentially lots of things. It's potentially a Jesus statue. It's potentially a park bench. It's potentially a water fountain. It's potentially whatever, but it is potentially also the David. And then once Michelangelo imposes the form of the David by chiseling and so on uh, onto that piece of marble, it then becomes actually the David. And so what we're doing with hylomorphism is, is explaining every object in the world um, has to be explained in that sort of way. Every object that exists has a potential component and an actual component. Act and potency both are combined into every object because if we don't do that, um, so thinks Aristotle and I agree, we're going to suffer the penalty of the problem of the one and the many. Either it will be the case that there is only one actual thing with no potentiality at all. So one, just oneness, that's all there is. All the differences besides are illusory. Or we're going to say there is no actuality. Everything is purely potential. And that's just another way of saying there is nothing or nihilism. Um, Aristotle said that can't be right because clearly there are many things, individual things. Well, how do we do that? Well, we stick the actuality and the potentiality both at the same time into the same objects and so on. That's a rough and ready sort of explanation to it. It's a very complicated, uh, uh, you know, you're probably thinking, uh, duh, that makes no sense to me. Right. It's a very complicated uh, sort of theory to work out. Um, but the idea is that uh, the reigning theories about individual, individual objects in the world, on the one hand, we've got positions called maybe physicalism, where everything is irreducibly whatever the physics that we're doing at the day can tell us about. Hylomorphism says that's not right because it doesn't explain principles of actuality and potentiality. It's reducing everything to matter, and that's not going to work. Um, problems of the one and the many crop up there. Or alternatively, we can do the um, the idealist bit, where none of the material objects are mind independent. Uh, that what there is are you know uh, mental objects, and that's it where there's no change and so on. It's just immaterial and simple and, and so on. Anyway, um, hylomorphism wants to take uh, what they think is a more realistic view of the world and to suggest that um, A, embodied things are genuinely real, but they're not irreducibly physical objects. Nothing is irreducibly physical, not my dog, not the chair that's in my office, not the computer that's in my room not human beings. Uh, but neither is it the case that we have some immaterial component that could float free of the biological organism. Uh, not at all. Um, we are the outworking of at least two metaphysical causes, form and matter, and that's the nuts and bolts of it. So that's the philosophical issue. Now, you asked about 
the soul and so on with respect to afterlife. Okay. So uh, the way hylomorphists think about the soul is the soul is just a particular kind of form or formal cause. And it's just the formal cause of living beings. So does Michelangelo's statue, the David, have a form? Uh, yes, it does. It's what structures or explains the structure of the David. But is it a soul? No, because the David's not alive. Souls are reserved for every living uh, biological organism. So humans, plants, trees, dogs, cats, mice, squirrels, cockroaches, whatever, all have souls. But notice a soul on this view just is the forming and structuring principle of a living object. It explains why that object is the object that it is and why it's alive. So obviously that sort of thing, or it's obvious to me, can't float free of the thing that it's making alive. I mean, for the very same reason that you can't have a smile without a smiler, you can't have a soul without an insouled thing or a form without an informed thing or a formed thing. The, the pithy way I put it is um, souls aren't things, things are sold, forms aren't things, things are formed. Okay. Um, that's the way I think that the, uh, the metaphysics works out. Now, the theological reason. There's a theological reason I hold this view at all. I think it makes philosophical sense, but the, the main reason I hold this view is because uh, I think that the Christian story places all of its hopeful emphasis on the bodily resurrection of Jesus, first and foremost, and because uh, of that, it places the emphasis on the future resurrection, bodily resurrection of human beings. And if we can speak of it this way, uh, the creation as such. It will be resurrected, if you like, from its death, you know, sort of decaying ways. It will be made a new creation, not numerically new. God's not going to wad this thing up and chuck it out. He's going to reshape and make qualitatively new uh, this world in the same way that he made qualitatively new Jesus's resurrection body. That was the body that died on the cross, okay? It's got the scars to prove it. Okay. Now, if the resurrection is super central and important, then my thought is that the way we need to think about humans needs fundamentally to um, emphasize that we just are our bodies from an objective standpoint, right? I mean, that doesn't, that doesn't exhaust our personalities and so on. But when I say, with what object is J.T. Turner identical? Well, the object that's in this seat, a living biological organism. And I think that that's true for everybody. And if that's right, then of course the resurrection is important. Because if this body doesn't come back to life, I don't come back to life. I'm just dead. And if Tom Wright's correct, and I think he is, um, I'm not saved if I'm not brought back from, from the dead. I'm just dead. That's what it is to be saved, is to be brought back to life um, from death. Uh, if Jesus doesn't conquer the grave, then we're all, mm, what's the polite way to say this? Uh, up the creek without a paddle. How about that? <laughs> I wanted to use it to, to my, I wanted to use another word, which to my mind is tame, but you know, some people don't like it anyway. Um, so right now the apologetic move, um, the theological problem with these stories and these emphases about heaven, this disembodied place that's for real that gets the story wrong. It 
it doesn't understand that the hope of the Christian life is the resurrection of the dead. It is not about ejecting out of this world and going to heaven or whatever. It's about heaven coming to earth and transforming. And when I say earth, I mean the cosmos generally and transforming the entire creation. I am convinced that that's right um, or correct, I should say. If I, I, I'm correct about the Christian story uh, being a story about Jesus and the new creation, then when I think about the hope of uh, life after death, uh, that's the hope I'm thinking about. And so any story about, hey, look how awesome it is to be denuded of my body is to me immediately, this is going to sound strong, but I think I mean it, anti-Christian. It's, it, it's pointing us away from the actual hope that I think Yahweh has for the cosmos, making it new and habitable to him as a temple for his worship. Um, so yeah, the heaven is for real stuff, the emphasis on, say, near-death experiences where supposedly we can show that we have these out-of-body experiences, all of that is a massive distraction. And um, I think for philosophical reasons that it's false, but I think for theological reasons, it's wrongly motivated. And I don't think that if we really believed and treated with utter, utter seriousness, the desperate hope that we have in the bodily resurrection, like if there's no bodily resurrection, we're done. That's it. Like the, the story is false. Okay. If we, if we took that like fully you know, by the horns, I don't think that any Christian worth her salt would begin to emphasize, you know, the afterlife of the soul. Like if there's an afterlife of the soul, we'd be going, yeah, but you know, that's pretty crappy. Uh, what we need is the bodily resurrection and we would be doing everything we could to point people to that. And to think about also uh, in terms of what we were talking about with apologetics too, I think this um, understanding of hylomorphism really lends itself toward an apologetic that emphasizes what our embodied existence looks like, right? Because it's saying right. that that's important because yeah. it's not just our soul, mind, you know, mental substance, quote unquote, that is going to fly away and be with Jesus. Like that's yeah. not the thing that's saved, right? It's right. Our, our entire beings and you can't separate us out like that. So then when we're thinking about apologetics to aim it exclusively at the quote unquote or so-called immaterial, <laughs> um, yeah. it is, it's fundamentally like a philosophical error in terms of who we are um, and, and a, a more holistic approach would better accord with what at least you're arguing human nature and, and I argue too, human nature yeah. is. So, so once upon a time, I wrote a uh, master's thesis. I mean, this is over a decade ago now. Um, so I used to be a substance dualist. So substance dualism for your listeners is the view that humans are su like substances, souls, like individual concrete objects that have a body, but don't need a body. We're fundamentally souls, right? And then we've got this body we interact with. So there are two substances in view when you're talking about me, but really the me is the soul. Anyway, I was, a I was that way, um, until I had, I was doing a second graduate uh, degree and I began to be more convinced of this view of the resurrection. So it's a theological point that was pushing me to reevaluate the philosophical ideas that I had. And I um, was taking a course with a guy called Don Fairbairn. He is um, over the um, patristics department at Gordon Conwell Seminary. 
Anyway, I was taking his course on classical um, philosophy and Christianity or classical Christianity and Greek philosophy or something like that. I can't remember what it was called. Um, but it raised some questions in my mind. I noticed that very quickly, um, Christian apologists, like early, like the early original Christian apologists, when talking about afterlife, immediately punted to the existence of the soul as a way to make rational discussion of Christian views of afterlife. And I, and I thought, boy, that's weird. I was like, you know, it's not like Aristotelian, Aristotelian views of the world weren't around back then. Why did Christianity go so quickly to a more Plato or Platonic inspired view of, of the world and humans? I mean, that's a broad generalization, okay? It gets more complicated than that. Um, but what I found uh, through the various writings going through from Irenaeus through Augustine was the survey I did, that one of the main reasons was because it, began, it was easier to explain afterlife and then resurrection as a subsidiary of that by appeal to the um, immortality of the soul. It was an apologetic move. And that became the overriding emphasis as opposed to emphasizing the hope of the resurrection. It was like, oh, uh, resurrection was this theme. So you'd have these thinkers talking out of both sides of their mouth. Um, resurrection, super, 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 super important. Oh, but, but also. Uh, you know, don't worry, um, you don't really need your body to have this fully orbed exist existence. You can go be with Jesus in the best possible place. Um, and then, oh, yeah, cool. There's this cherry on top we call resurrection later on. But let's think about um, let's think about this heaven or whatever. And, oh, we've got these cool things we can borrow from philosophy and Platonic philosophy in particular that shows that the soul is immortal. And so cool. We can hitch our wagon to that. And I mean, Christian tradition, to my mind, didn't really recover. Uh, well, has it recovered from that? I'm not sure. Um, you know, I, I think there's some biblical theologians, I mean, pushing back on that now. But that, anyways, the idea is that, at least from what I saw, it seemed like the whole move towards that direction was entirely generated by apologetic concerns, but the wrong sort, in my view. Not apologetics for trying to properly explain what's true about the Christian story. It was trying to overcome a philosophical objection to life after death in general, but that was like a massive distraction. It was like immediately uh, the church jumped off the track of resurrection and sort of forgot that that was like the main track. Um, and uh, yeah, that's kind of how that went. Now, one, one, one uh, objection to my entire view here is that, um, you know, what I'm claiming and what a number of biblical theologians have been claiming for the last 30, 40 years is that much of the church has gotten this wrong. And anytime you do that, it gets a bit squirrely because, I mean, you know, I'm just some peon in Anderson, South Carolina. Like, I'm not a great doctor of the church or something. So I don't. I might sound very cocksure about this. I don't mean to. Um, I am passionate about it, but I do also recognize that that's a potential defeater for the view that, you know, the bulk of church tradition has disagreed with my position. So anyway. So I think this conversation is interesting to take back also to what we were talking about with evidence, because um, so when, when we're talking about evidence that's also tacitly received, um, it's a way of legitimizing that in a sense, 
right? So if, if you follow more of a substance dualist view that says we're made up of two substances, material and immaterial, um, or, or there's the mind, uh, the soul, and then there's the body versus hylomorphism, which isn't slicing the ice in terms of these two substances as much as it's saying there's the form and the matter, right? Um, so what? So if, if you hold to more of a substance dualist view and you're going to privilege the, the immaterial over the material, or I mean, even though they don't like to say that they're doing that, it, like you said, the material is kind of the subsidiary of the, the immaterial at, at best, right? Sure. But you're going, you're, you're going to privilege the mind. You're going to privilege kind of maybe facts, propositions, those sorts of things. So it, you're going to be quick to say, okay, just because there's something in your body that is causing you to halt before walking into a church, right? You need to just get over that because that's irrational. Whereas I would say that's not fundamentally irrational, you know? Um, but if you're thinking about human nature in this more holistic sense, then there's a way of bringing that subjective and that objective together as cohesively rational um, in an integrated way, right? So then that would mean um, looking for different strategies that that honor that kind of embodied existence and that also recognize forms of evidence that are tacit that do lead us onto reality and helping to navigate that in helpful ways. Is that, does that make any kind of sense to you? Yeah, I think so. Um, so, you know, it starts with the, the metaphysical question with what am I identical? Am I identical to some immaterial soul that makes use of a body? Or am I identical with this biological organism complete with all of its ail, you know, ailments and emotions and um, you know, sensitivities and you know, psychological issues and chemical imbalances or whatever the case may be? Um, or am I actually this other thing that is only sort of tangentially or instrumentally united to this thing that's got these you know, chemical imbalances or whatever? Like, you know, when I say instrumental union, think about, you know, when you're holding a hammer, you're instrumentally united to the hammer. Um, do you feel the things the hammer does? Well, not really. I mean, you can kind of feel when it vibrates, right? But that's not really you uh, getting all of that. You're sort of feeling what it's feeling. Anyway, um, if you approach the world, or potentially, I don't know if, I don't want to make this a uh, dogmatic sort of claim, but it, it seems, uh, Amber, like you, like you could be well onto something that if it's the case that you're committed to the claim that you're nothing other than um, an immaterial soul that isn't really part of the material world, then all the sort of trappings of the material world, the worries of the material world and so on are utterly unimportant. So you talked about, uh, I don't remember exactly how you put it, but the, the thing that popped in my mind was you're walking, about to walk into a church become very unsettled feeling. Well, is that an embodied emotion? Um, well, if that's embodied, that's the body's problem and not my problem because I control the body because I'm this other thing in the body and I can just walk it through the door by sheer power of my immaterial will. But if I am the embodied being, then it's me who's having the emotional response and I've got to deal with that. That's a serious uh, concern that uh, isn't just something that you know, I can, as an, you know, an individual divorced from that sort of overpower, at least it seems that that's entirely possible. And I, I want to take that sort of thing seriously. Um, and, 
yeah. at least it's not tangential. Cause I've, I've heard in lots of classes, like, okay, well, you know, you're going to say to the atheist, I've proven to you on every rational basis that Christianity is true or whatever. And right. you not accepting it means that you don't have intellectual honesty or that you aren't being rational. Right. Um, right. when their reason for accepting it, it, it's not propositional, it's tacit yeah. and it is rational. Like that is a form of rationality. Right. Um, but then if you flip it on the other side and you think about tacit evidence, not just being things that keep us from Christianity, but also we indwell Christianity tacitly too. <laughs> like in, in many ways, that's what, that's what keeps us in Christianity. That's what it means to be a Christian is to indwell the world Christianly. Right. So, so there's something I think that's important for, for us to explore in new avenues of apologetics that takes seriously because that, that takes seriously the objections of abuse and the questions about is Christianity just because what about these very lived realities in the world? It takes seriously that. And then it also takes seriously the, the transformation of faith. Yeah, I, I think I agree. Yeah, that's right. Um, I mean, so here's the, the worry about the rationality components. I mean, you know, I teach intro to philosophy and I'm an analytic philosopher. So there's a sense in which I do want to say that if you see that two premises of a logically valid argument are true, you should see and agree that the conclusion also is true. Because if the premises are true and it's logically valid, then the argument is logically sound. But that, I, I, I've started to suspect, um, for reasons you just pointed out, Amber, that there maybe are, there, there's more than one way to think about rationality. Um, there's the, should I agree with the argument? And then, is it, is it fully rational to change my life just because I see that an argument comes out as logically sound? And at that point, you know, what you, what you might have for, suppose somebody who's, you know, suffered abuse or racism or something, which is a kind of abuse, I guess, um, from walking back into the doors of a church. Well, I doubt it's that they see that the arguments are logically valid and sound. I think that what they see is maybe they see that that's logically valid and sound, but they might go, yeah, but um, I've also, you know, felt maybe in a more real way, and here I mean feel and not think, in a more real way, uh, this, something about this isn't right. It's not true. It's not good. It's not beautiful. Something is off and it's not reducible to, here's the argument. It's, uh, I'm going to use the word deeper than that. It's, that's a vague expression, but let's say deeper, something deeper than that, something more central to me as a human being, something that cuts right to the core, uh, that exposes some kind of nerve or just makes it, makes me completely unable to commit to this, to this thing that claims that it's true. Um, well, it makes sense too, yeah. if, if uh, back to the theory of truth, if you think that truth is just a series of propositions and that truth you take to be fully articulatable, um, that you can put into logical formulations and manipulate like that, that's the totality of truth. Um, then, then you could see how someone would say, well, you know, there, there are no other factors here. If these, if this, um, if these premises lead logically to this conclusion, you should accept it, you know, but if what we're hitting on is that there is 
something else that is true that isn't fully articulable. I can't fully articulate, you know, my experience of misogyny or whatever. Sure. Um, but it is true insofar as when I, it's like I'm moving around in the world and the world kind of pushes back at me. You know, like I think you said it exposes a nerve, right? Like that's still that's still reality. That's still happening. There's still something there, you know, now, whether that's what we think it is or it's something else, you know, those are things to explore, but there is still something real and true and, and quote unquote rational about that experience, you know? So I think enlarging our concept of evidence and rationality could really help people in, in thinking through the possibilities of Christianity. Right. And honestly, I mean, I think this, you know, um, you know, your study, your, your sort of research is um, probably better uh, suited to think about these questions in my own, Amber, but um, there's, a, there's a real danger that um, Christian apologists and even analytic philosophers reduce human interaction with the world kind of like uh, the way car manufacturers assume that automated cars could figure out when it's right or wrong to hit a pedestrian. Um, and, uh, or, you know, like a narcissist um, uh, sort of CEO of a business or some kind of cold calculating psychopath can, um, sorry if you hear my text messaging dinging on my computer. I don't know how to turn it off on a computer. <laughs> so, sorry. Um, there's, a, there's a sense in which the, so that the AI, the psychopath or whatever, who's not involved in taking into account human emotions, uh, they're doing the irrational thing. They actually can't think about things in a purely rational way. They're thinking about it in a rational sort of stunted two-dimensional way, let's say. They're saying that the logic of the argument goes through. That's fine, but this is what I'm saying. I, I wonder if there's a, there's a, more fully orbed way of thinking about logical reasoning, which will take seriously um, everything that a human is rather than reducing a human to thinking uh, logically through propositions um, as they track towards, you know, some kind of correspondence theory of, uh, of truth. So, I mean, right. So when I, you know, there's, there's some people that I know uh, and becoming more familiar with now who are, reading their work, interacting with them in person, I know these people genuinely love Jesus. They want to be a part of Jesus's kingdom. They want to do good work for Jesus's kingdom. They want to worship Jesus with Jesus's people. But they are, they are becoming fundamentally unable to walk in to the doors of a church because of some kind of trauma. And when they explain to me the trauma that's happened to them, uh, my my um, my reaction is to think, well, that is the rational thing to do. That would be weird if you just were like, eh, it doesn't matter. Let me just walk in the door. That would seem to me to be irrational. And when I talk about rationality of that component, I'm not saying, have you analyzed the arguments well? There's something else at play. And that something else is, uh, I'm starting to think, is just as important. It's not my area of research, mind you, but it seems to me it's just as important as doing the thing that I'd like to do, which is think about the you know validity and soundness of a particular argument. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Turner. I really appreciate uh, this conversation.
question and thinking about how those who hold to a substance dualist uh, position, which uh, is metaphysically, you know, not reductive, uh, actually are methodologically reductive in their approach to apologetics. And just thinking about how limited it is to this sort of particular way of thinking about rationality and, and just enjoy this more holistic kind of embodied approach to, to all of that and how that opens the doors for thinking more broadly about all sorts of apologetic concerns. So just really appreciate this conversation. Yeah, well, thanks for having me along. I've, I've uh, enjoyed talking with you. Hopefully I didn't talk too much. <laughs>